In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the prophet Micah, now looking at chapter 4. In dramatic contrast to the warnings and judgments of chapter 3, Micah foresees a day when God will establish his kingdom in Jerusalem and bring lasting peace and justice to all nations. People worldwide will seek God's teaching and walk in his ways. Wars will cease, weapons will become tools, everyone will live securely and without fear, and Zion will be exalted again as a source of instruction and wisdom for the peoples. Good morning and blessed Advent. Today is Tuesday, December 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about all their translating and publishing and distribution work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Feel free to call in this morning with your comments or questions. You can dial 800-730-2727. Or if you want to, you can just email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also send me a message on Facebook, and I'll try to get your question or your comment out on the air. But for right now, let's welcome back to the program regular contributor, the Reverend Kevin Parvis, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Parvis. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Pastor Bill. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, better than I deserve. It's nice to have you on here for our topic today. How is your Advent going already? So far, so good. It's two days old. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. That's right. It is only a couple of days old, but certainly you have it planned out and lots of things coming down the pike. Oh, yeah. We got, uh, you know, obviously only three Wednesdays in Advent this year, so a three-part three sermon. That's always fun. We have uh, opportunities for outreach during this season and, of course, our uh, preparations for Christmas, as everybody is. So that's always an exciting time of the year. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, I think we have a, quite a bit to cover today, so there's nothing to do but to do it. Would you start our time together in prayer, though, please? Sure. Abba Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for this season in which we live in expectation of your son's return. We thank you, Father, for the hope and the faith that you give us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and help us to longingly and with great expectation anticipate those trumpets and his return and the kingdom coming in completeness into this land in jesus name amen amen well all right set the stage for us because we've been reading through micah and chapter three was certainly filled with a great deal of uh denouncements and woes and judgment but that all shifts with chapter four which we're going to cover today but chapter 4 also seems incredibly familiar. Maybe Isaiah 2. Tell us what's going on. Well, certainly we have, uh, you know, obviously a lovely Christmas text from Micah. And, uh, and then, of course, all those woes, because that is the reality of what Micah is preaching to, to a people who are, uh, who are living lives outside of God's, God's desire. Uh, And yet there's always this promise that when God chastises you, he does it for your good. And when you listen to him, you will will 
be blessed by what God has planned for us. And that's always the challenge for all of God's people today is to, you know, this time of the year, it's very easy to get caught up in all the uh, the darkness around us and the woes that are going on, but we have to stay steadfast. And when we stay steadfast by God's grace, we look forward to that uh, Advent culmination that is, yes, both the incarnation, but also the, the second coming. Indeed. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we go ahead and just start reading into Micah chapter 4. The prophet writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Zion. I'm sorry, the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Uh, and then it continues. I lost my place, folks. Here we go. Uh, Any more. Uh, then they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. All right. <laughs> That's the end of verse 5. So, so as I read through that, despite my uh, losing my place for a moment, it uh, it sounds very familiar to Isaiah two. Um, so, talk us a little bit through this. What is the prophet uh, declaring? But why do we also get the similarity to not similarity, but nearly identicalness to Isaiah? I mean, certainly they they're pro- they're prophesying the same message to the same people. And so the reality is, of course, that God's word is unchanging. This is uh, this is a great, uh, I, I think, a great encouragement for us to see the continuity of Scripture and the truth of God's word, and how unchanging it is. Uh, and we also have, I mean, contemporaries to some degree. So the the word of God is co- going out to a people through a couple of prophets, at least, uh, that though the the impending disaster that is God's command is is happening. You know, remain steadfast, and by God's grace, we will reap what we will uh, we will see in the time to come. And you know, it's a promise for an Israel that is about to be destroyed, uh, but a promise for the people that they're going to be. You know, there's a now and a not yet. That they're going to be regathered, and we saw that. Uh, but it's just a it's a partial regathering uh, because the reality is this time to come is a time of lovely prosperity, wonderful peace. We have not yet seen that anywhere in the world, so uh, we're still looking forward to that fulfillment. Well, in regards to their similarity, I know that it wasn't completely an unusual practice for 
profits to borrow from each other or the same tradition, um, especially if they were associated in their ministries. Obviously, they want to have the same message. It sounds like you lean more towards the idea that perhaps the Lord just gave them exactly the same message, uh, but separately. Uh, and, and that's I think that's certainly plausible, too. Of course, they're not exactly the same. We'll look at some of those differences in a minute. But just beginning right at first one, you know, it says that it shall come to pass in the latter days this that the mountain of the house of the Lord or Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and everybody's going to flow to it. Uh, the prophet's looking forward into history. When is he looking to? Because as you said, that's not happening today. When does that happen? I mean, this, when? this is sort of, I think, evidence of the cataclysm. You know, I, I, well, I, I believe that we as believers have been given this world as, as custodians, and we need to care for it. I'm still a little, you know, the, uh, the whole business of what's going on today with the sort of worship of Mother Earth and the green movement and all the stuff that goes on, when the reality is what Mike is talking about here is this world is going to end in cataclysm, and it's going to be recreated. And, and, there, and you see this picture of... Because, you know, I, I, you've probably been to Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem. It's, it's not a big mountain, let's be honest. Uh, but here in Micah, we get a picture of that this mountain is going to be raised above all other mountains. And you kind of get uh, a picture of uh, what Isaiah talks about in 40, where the valleys will be made low and the mountains will be made high. Uh, everything is going to be level up until that mountain. And that mountain is going to be raised above all things, and all people will flow to it. That mountain is the presence of God in our lives physically again. You know, we know the temple is destroyed. It is not going to be rebuilt in, in, uh, in man's time. But by God's grace, he's going to rebuild that and raise it up so that we can all flow to it. And there's great pictures of Revelation in here as well, Revelation 21 specifically. Uh, how do we see those images from Revelation 21? Well, the the, the lamp is the, the lamp is the lamb. There's no moon, no sun. Uh, the temple is rebuilt and restored. It is the place in which all the gates are open and all the nations flow to, and it is where God's God's holiness will reign. And that's the picture that Mike has given us as well. So he's looking forward to the you know end of time that's the end of those days yeah. right a future right. time I mean, when when the, the nations repent yeah I, I i think mike is writing about you know he's given the people hope that they will come back to their land that's necessary for the the now but the not yet is but even what we have here is not what god intends and we see what's going on in israel right now and and the you know the the tragedy that's unfolding there that, that certainly is not this this time that God is describing through Micah. The time to come when we will all uh, live in peace and the nations will not war again. You know, I'm, I am uh, always chagrined by conversations I have with Jewish people who will say that, you know, we know that Jesus can't be the Messiah because swords have not been beaten into plowshares. There's no peace. Um the peace that's coming 
is when he returns. He came first to reconcile us to God, and then when he comes again, we will be reconciled to not only God, but also to each other. And that's an important distinction. I think that's interesting what you brought up about modern Jews saying because peace has not reigned and Christ, or Jesus rather, was not the Christ— but at the same time, during Jesus' day, everybody expected that the Christ would come and be a a, a warfare Messiah, you know, ousting yeah. out the oppressive Romans from their control. So yeah, it's kind so of an interesting forgot, change. They, Why the change? Well, I mean, obviously, in the time of uh, Jesus, they're looking for peace in their land. You know, they want to re-raise the, the throne of David, and they want Judah— to be the kingdom that everybody looks up to again and oust all these Romans. That's that's such a limited perspective. And now, because there's really, I mean, Israel is a fairly minor, minor, even though there's so much, so much uh, tension spent in that region, you wouldn't call them a superpower. Um, th- this is about the time to come. What, and it's not about Israel necessarily the land. It's about Israel, God's people, the faithful people of God, who encompasses all the, all of those Jews who come to faith in Messiah, and all the Gentiles around the world who've come to faith in Messiah. And so you have this picture of the time to come. And today, you know, it's such a limited perspective on the part of the Jews who are merely just reacting to. Uh, probably evangelical uh, work uh, amongst them that are just rejecting Jesus as a whole because there's no peace. Uh, There's no peace in their lives. There's no peace in the world. But Jesus came first to bring peace between us and God, and that's what we need first before he returns. Oh, absolutely. And I know that you minister to, you know, a a Jewish population, you know, in my, in my context, one of the things that I've been encouraging people and reminding them is that, uh, just what you said, you know, we're looking forward to the end. We're looking forward to, you know, not that it's going to be this wonderful day because the Bible warns us against that, but we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. That's the Jerusalem being talked about here. Um, so many, especially evangelicals get worked up over, conflicts in the Middle East and in the nation state of Israel, nothing to do with what's going on here. Uh, But at the same time, I also see this being partially fulfilled, proleptically, of course, but also um, the idea that this many nations shall come to God, let us go to the mountain of Yahweh. We see that even in the proclamation of the gospel over the past 2,000 years, and now it's not just ethnically Jewish people that uh, go to Yahweh, but rather people from every nation. Right, exactly. And it's, and that's a, it's a bigger perspective and a big picture. Uh, certainly it's a much bigger perspective than the Jews had at the time of Jesus. And, and their perspective they have now is even more limited, which is always a challenge. Indeed. But that is a beautiful uh, passage, this concept of beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations never even learning war anymore. Uh, Those very same words are engraved outside the United Nations. Of course, they attribute them to Isaiah 2, which is fair because it's also found there. But we, we see this type of language of, yeah, there is peace coming. And that's what this season, uh, Advent, is all about. Yes, we're anticipating. Yes, we're looking forward to counting down to Christmas. In fact, we'll be doing that as a 
as a show coming up uh, next Monday. But really, and probably more pertinently, we are looking for the end. We are looking for Christ to return in his second advent. I think that's lost sometimes in this season where everybody's just trying to rush to the big present day. I think I think you're right. I think we lose a lot of perspective if we only think about Advent as Christmas. The incarnation is really important. Don't get me wrong, but it is the Advent of His Second Coming that is even more so for us. I mean, the, the Calvary is always going to be the the hinge of history, but that hinge of history is leading us forward past the incarnation to the end. If I'm not mistaken, verse 5 is not found in Isaiah. This is something that's unique to Micah. And he he says, and I'll read it again, For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. So I, I know first level reading what this means, right? Foreign nations are each worshiping their own God, but but – what does this mean in the context of what's going on? I mean, is this just talking about at the end, we will all walk in the name of Yahweh? Or is it sort of a, as for me and my household, we'll serve Yahweh kind of deal? How would you, how would you interpret that? I mean, it, you know, the people of God have always suffered with and, and been surrounded by idolatrous nations. And that was, you know, unfortunately, they always tend, rather than to hold true to the worship of the one true God, they always tend to fall to the idolatrous nations and and start to adopt their ways. That's why when they entered into the promised land, God said, get rid of all these things. Um, and so we have, you know, we have here that there's, there's another lament here about the fact that the nations surrounding Zion are always idolatrous nations, and the people uh, need, you know, the people always seem to succumb to those idols, and here they they will not. Well, you know, as I think about that too, and I'm always looking for ways that these. Uh, text from the scriptures can either be applied to our lives today or can, you know, affect our lives today. This is where we're living now. We live in the midst of not other nations who walk in the name of their own God, but rather it seems like every individual walks in the name of his own God. You know, we're, we're no longer a religious nation of Yahweh established somewhere geographically on earth, you know, like the U.S. or Spain or whatever. But rather, his his kingdom is not of this world. So we are really sojourners continuing to walk in this. So for all the people's walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh. We know the struggles that even God's people had to do that in that time. But even today, it seems like we continue to struggle to recognize that we are different than those around us who have not been uh, given faith. And that not just that we are different, but that we are called to be different. Right, right. And that's, uh, that's an important, important thing. And yet, and so we, you know, we constantly have to live. It's the whole two kingdom theology. You know, we, we are not citizens of just United States. We're citizens of heaven. And that's our primary citizenship. We are called to be different here as we influence the land that we live in. 
And so in many ways, Vika 545 is a, uh, it's a realization that we all walk in the name of our own gods, but God's people will walk in the name of him forever and ever, and not just now, but into eternity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we have to look forward to. And you talked about that dual citizenship nature of it. And yeah, it's that's that whole in the world, but not of it that Jesus talks about. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what we're looking forward to. But in verse three, if we pop back for just a second, when that day comes, it says very clearly, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations. So we think of Judgment Day as the day in which our sins are examined and our life is examined according to God's mercy. And those, of course, who have been forgiven in Christ enter into eternal life and those who have not into eternal damnation. All right. So here, though, it describes the judging a little differently. It's, it's, it's almost like a magistrate or, or a, a tort lawyer or a tort judge, you know, judging between people, deciding disputes. Why is it phrased that way? What is he talking about? I mean, I get the sense that, and I, you know, again, I, I honestly do not have a clear understanding of what it's going to look like when the Lord returns. You know, the scriptures give us a fairly good description, but even so, I think that that judgment day is longer than a day. I mean, we, we know that that all nations will bow to Jesus, will recognize him as the Messiah. But is it too late by then? I think so. But, you know, I, I am, I'm working on, on the concept that, it, that until that day, when the trumpets blow and the dead in Christ are raised and we follow him into the, them into the air to meet him, that until that day, all nations, all peoples have an opportunity to recognize Jesus as Lord and to be on that day forgiven. But there is clearly indication that there's going to be many who are not, and that's the judgment that's going on here, not just even between people, but nations who have who have turned away from our Lord. And, and, and the scriptures are fairly clear that every knee will bow down to him, but that doesn't mean that they're all recognizing him as their Lord and Savior. They're just recognizing that he, that what they all believe for their whole life was wrong, and this is, this is the penalty that they're going to pay. So you, it sounds like you're saying that, the, that you see the j- deciding between people more of as a segregating or separating people, like the sheep and the goat sort of thing, and so, less like yeah. an arbiter? Because I, I got the sense that it's like an arbitration where he sits and he, you have two people and he says one is right and one is wrong. Or, or is that sort of the same thing? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, so in, in the second half of three, you know, he shall decide for strong nations far afar off. Uh, and what does that mean, strong? I don't think that's strong in, you know, in power. It's strong in faith. And so there are, there are those are the nations outside of the nation of Israel at that time who, are, who have turned to the Lord. Those are the strong nations, and he will decide for them. And, you know, I don't think that's geopolitical nations. I think it's it's people groups who have come to faith uh, in Messiah. And so that's who he's going to decide for. And then they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Um, and those I nations think, shall not. Yeah, it'll be peace at that point. 
Yeah, and I think that's I think that's the way I see it too. Another way to look at it, perhaps even, you know, he shall judge between peoples decide disputes. Well, the very next phrase talks about the elimination of war. They shall not learn right. war. No tools of war, and, and even right. the tools they do have will be used for benefiting each other. So I also see this as a call that Christ will then be not only the authority in the sense that he is, of course, God and therefore is the author of all things, but he has an authority now because everybody's looking to him that the disputes go away, the divisions go away between people groups. Uh, And I agree with you that I don't think they're nation groups. I think they're they're just peoples. But now no longer are you going to fight because you're all going – your disputes are going to be settled. And what settles them? Christ coming at the end of time. I mean, who's going to fight each other when well, Christ has come? Uh, so I, right. I also see that aspect of it, of it too. Uh-huh. Just a fascinating, beautiful depiction of what it's going to look like in the new heavens and the new earth. But as you pointed I mean, out, it's been proplectically filled time and time again. Go ahead, please. I just It seems um, inconceivable to me that following the return of our Lord Jesus, that people will still want to war. And, uh, well, I don't I think, think he would, that, right, yeah. That's the nature of what Micah is saying here, is that they won't. And and God is going to decide for those strong nations, strong in their faith, not desiring to war. Exactly. You know, we, we'll be confirmed in righteousness, at least the ultimate fulfillment of this. We'll be confirmed in our righteousness. Therefore, we'll all, different people groups, even if we divide ourselves, I don't think we'll be dividing ourselves into people groups. But even if we did, because we will all share the will of God, then there's nothing to war or fight over. But yeah, lots, yeah. lots to look forward to. Strikes me that there are only two people groups at this time in history there will be those who are the Lord's and those who are not. And God is going to decide for those who are the Lord's. Right. Well, those two people groups continue today, obviously, right? There's, yeah. just, there's believers and unbelievers. Um, yep. and But in heaven, I don't foresee, and I think the Bible perhaps even speaks against this concept of differing people groups. But, I, you know, the Bible often talks to us in ways that are easy to understand according to our human nature. So we understand people groups. We understand groups of people fighting. And and even think about the heart of fighting people groups. How often is it, and I'm going to say never, that everyone engaged in the fight is convicted by the dispute? (laughs) Or how often is it that they're just going to fight because that's what their vocation is and they've been told by those above them to go fight? Uh, So so it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how a lot of people fight wars that they don't themselves believe in. Uh, The the scriptures point us toward peace, though. The scriptures point us towards ultimate peace. And I think that also cautions us in this time. If this is what the world's going to look like when Christ returns, then how should it look like among us today? Should we as Christians be going to war with people or should we be taking our instruments of war and turning them into plowshares? Um, There's some arguments that can be made toward that. Yeah, although I, I am also still convinced by Romans 12 in this day and age that that's what that we need to do, but, you know, to obey the authorities that God has given above us. So I don't know. There is, you know, the conscientious objector uh, concept is a strong concept and uh, something to certainly talk about as well. But uh, I, I just, you know, all I know is that what Mike is talking about is we're going to look forward to a time in which that will not even be an issue. 
Well, we look forward to that time. Yes, lots of people are eager to take up swords for Christ, but Jesus says, put your sword back in your sheath. But we yeah. will continue to talk about Micah when we get back, and that'll happen right after these messages. So folks, don't go anywhere. Pastor Parvis and I will be back on the other side. are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host. This is Thy Strong Word. This morning, I have the Reverend Kevin Parvis with me. He's the pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Before we head back into Micah 4, I just want to remind you once again that if you have feedback, questions, comments, complaints, concerns, you could reach out. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Phone into the studio, 800-730-2727. Or find me on Facebook. You can send me a text message right now through Facebook, and I can get your question out on the air. Well, Pastor, before the break, we were just sort of finishing up toward this vision of what God wants for his creation. And that is one where nations are at peace. They all look to the Lord for wisdom and they never learn war anymore. When we move into verse six, we now shift gears a little bit, but it's still part of that same prophetic message. I'm going to go ahead and read through the end of the chapter through verse 13. In that day, declares Yahweh. I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And actually, I fibbed a little bit. I'm not going to go to the end. I just want to stop right there. The first two verses. So uh, first two verses of this second half. In that day declares Yahweh. What day is that? Uh, again, the same day that we're talking about. Well, every, well, every man is sitting under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. The day of peace, the day of his return. Well, take us through this then. Well, what I love about this particular transition, and I think the transition is too early, uh, in my Bible, it has a human uh, label, the Lord shall rescue Zion. Um, but it, the transition actually happens in four, because he's talking about nations, and he, and he goes back to that in five, but he transitions to an, a personal deliverance. There is a personal deliverance that happens, not just nations, not just peace, 
but individuals who will see a, a, a sense of prosperity sitting under their vine and under their own fig tree. And here we have those who have been, who have come uh, into this time who are lame and who are uh, afflicted and who are oppressed and all of those. And God is going to minister to those needs in perfection. Yeah, I, I agree I mean, with you. I'm, I'm, well, I'm just looking on the page here, real quick. And uh, yes, the, the title the the editors put "The Lord Shall Rescue Zion" right above six. Um, yes, reflecting on what you said, I completely agree with you. Um, it should be above five. That makes a lot of sense. But yeah, we have this talk of country, and then we talk into strong nations, and here we have He's going to make you into a strong nation. Uh, but in that day, as you already pointed out, is the coming day of the Lord, the one that's been already discussed. Um, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. Sounds like this is three different groups of people, the lame, those who have been driven away, and those God himself has afflicted. Am I right in saying that those are three different groups, or is it describing one complete group? How would you how would you explain that? Well, in some ways, I see the the Sermon on the Mount uh, as a kind of a commentary on maybe it's the other way around, Micah, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But you know, Jesus talks about how what it is to live as uh, as someone who follows who follows God, who follows Christ. And uh, it's always upside down. These dichotomies are sort of backwards. The things that we expect and, you know, and, and that the world, sorry about that, I'll take that off. Um, the, what the world does to us and what the world expects in our ways of being, you know, secure and prosperous and all those things are really upside down in the Sermon on the Mount. And here the upside downness comes to completeness. Oh, sure, sure. And so he... Sure, the ones that the Lord afflicts, but those who are, uh, you know, I don't, well, how does God afflict us? That's, that's not a, you know, that's a question we have to talk about a little bit. What Are we afflicted by God? Absolutely. I think God punishes even his children, just like we as human parents have to, I'm sure my kids would tell me I've, I've afflicted them in their day. Um, is that what that's about? Well, 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 let's look at it. So assembling the lame, I guess when I read that, I, I sense this idea of those who cannot come on their own and God is the one doing the assembling. And then gathering also focuses on God's work of gathering those who have been driven away, driven by, by, by what? Invading armies, driven away by, you know, occupying forces and those whom I have afflicted, the, the ones that God has um, a done, I think both of those things too. And the reason I say that is because, as you know, it's a theodicy to try to get God off the hook. So I think there's an aspect here where when people look at their misfortunes in life, there are certainly temporal reasons for that. But at the end of the day, God is always in control. And so he's the one who will take those people and will restore them. And that's verse 7. The lame, which is the first group, I will make the remnant. Those who are cast off a strong nation. A casting off being connecting both those ones whom have been driven away and afflicted. So he, when he gets into seven, he only talks about two of the groups. So that's why I think we have these, we have these uh, two different groups, but then God's always the one in control. Uh, do you see it a different way? Well, no. I, I think the reason he doesn't mention the ones that he 
afflicts is because the ones he's afflicting are going to be brought up in eight again, um, and 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 especially nine. I, I love I love the shift that I that Micah is here going to. I almost said Isaiah. So you got me on that. Uh, I love the shift that Micah is going to make here uh, back to his own people in the now, um, and that's that's talking to us as well because we're the ones that the Lord afflicts, and he obviously. He afflicts his own in the in the cross of Christ. He is afflicted for us, and that's you know that's again Isaiah language, and certainly uh, a, a beautiful picture of uh, Jesus taking our affliction. and And we don't need to. He doesn't need to bring up that second group or that third group, if you will, because that's being taken care of in the coming. Well, let's add eight and nine to the conversation. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? It it goes on, but let's just pause there for a second. So we're introducing these two verses. Um, How does that expand on what he's saying in 6 and 7? Well, I I think that he's now addressing the ones whom the Lord has afflicted. So he's taking care of the lame and the outcast, right? So those who are cast off will be a strong nation. The lame will be a remnant. The the ones the Lord has afflicted are now being addressed— and and apparently and you know and again you, you can't separate prophetic utterance you can't separate the now from the not yet uh, and so you know, is this a, a message for Israel now uh, why are you crying out is there no king in you and I I'm always struck by the but it seems like you know I I might attribute too much emotion to God I don't know but when. Uh, when the when the nation cried out for a king and they wanted Saul, and it seems like God was saying, "Was I not king enough for you that now you want a human king?" Uh, and it's like he's he's saying that again here. Yes, you know we have a reference that head takes us uh, that takes us to Jeremiah. Eight, where similar language is used. Verse 19, it says, Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land is Yahweh not in Zion, is her yeah. king not in her. So the, there in Jeremiah, at the very least, he, yeah, you're right. He's saying, I'm the king, and we have similar language. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Another thing yeah, that I, I see here, though, is that we have not only Yahweh being the king in them, but the salvation's coming from the king who is to come, who my, Micah will talk about in the very next chapter. So is there no king in you? Certainly references Yahweh being their king, but certainly it represents the seed of the woman that still is within their genetic makeup that's coming in the future. Of course, that's Jesus. Yeah, we have Isaiah 7 here now, right? The, the one that is to come born of a virgin. Right, sure, yeah. Isaiah Has what, your seven, perished, the pain seized you like a woman in labor. Uh, so you have all that imagery going on here as well. Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And and actually, for what it's worth, that same imagery is in Jeremiah too, six. So that's a, a, a common language that God is pointing them forward. Yeah, he's he's referencing right here. Has your counselor perished? Well, who is that wonderful counselor, <laughs> mighty yeah, God, exactly. King? Yeah. Has that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Well. I don't know that he's directly referencing, you know, Isaiah's uh, prophecy of the virgin, but it certainly brings to our Christian minds that because we know that's coming. Verse 10, uh, writhe at, oh, go ahead. I mean, if you're going to argue that Micah might have borrowed from Isaiah, why wouldn't he borrow Isaiah 7? <laughs> well, I actually didn't argue that, but yeah, if one does argue that, that's possible. You're right. I'm just hat, just, just just messing with you now, but yeah, that's, <laughs> but that's, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't think either one of us can't agree on the fact. I think we can both agree on the fact that Micah gets uh, a vision from God and he writes this wonderful prophecy. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. Just to make my words clear, in case it wasn't for others, I know you're just giving me a hard time, but in case people on the audience weren't clear. There are several views. One of them includes that they were working in tandem. The other includes that they were both operating off of a um, shared prophetic tradition. Uh, and then third, the less skeptical view, in my opinion, is that their their messages are very, very similar because the one who's giving them the message is the same person, and which is same. God. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's, let's head into 10 now because it continues this, this language or I guess this sense of pain seizing you like a woman. Uh, back in Jeremiah 24, um, it, he says, We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as a woman in labor. Well, here we can get that sense even from Micah, verse 10, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, but there you shall be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. And, All and right, one, well, of the th one of the things we can't forget in this whole text is why is there pain in labor? Right, yeah, as a right? consequence of the fall, sure. A consequence of the fall. And so all of this, so these are the ones who God afflicts because he afflicts us because of sin. But he always gives us the opportunity and the promise to be forgiven and to, be, and to come back. And he does that so beautifully here in 10. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, when we're talking about the now and not yet, the now for them is that like a woman who's helpless in her labor, they are being drugged out of their city and into Babylon, right? Into captivity, into dispersion. But then there's hope. There you shall be rescued because Yahweh will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Enemies, by the way, he sent upon them. Right. He's afflicting them with these enemies out of his judgment and discipline. But I also see imagery since we were talking earlier about, you know, woman in labor. We think of Mary. Well, gosh, 10 seems a lot like the journey of Jesus. We have the woman yeah. in labor. She goes out from the city into the open country. Of course, in this case, she goes to Bethlehem, which is pretty open country. Um, yeah. But then they go to then they flee to Egypt and then they right. are 
rescued and Egypt and Babylon are often connected in the Old Testament. So I, I don't think that this is necessarily a one-to-one and Micah's looking at Mary's situation, but I, again, it certainly brings that imagery to our mind because, well, frankly, because we know what he says next in Micah 5 about <laughs> where the Messiah will be born. And some, and some, uh, Sometimes I wonder if the prophets even really understand what they're writing themselves. I mean, they're giving they're giving God's message faithfully, but you know, sometimes I wonder how much the prophets get either. And I can't hardly think because it's not just this destruction, but even Jesus talks about the destruction to come in the temple in seventy A.D. and how it will be terrible for the women who are in labor. Right. Right. Yeah, and there's that whole picture again in in the time to come from Micah's time, even to Jesus's time. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, I, I I definitely think that the 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 Lord is using similar things to point us forward to um, well, a real understanding of what it's going to look like. I want to move us into the last three verses. Now, I really will read them together. Here we go. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of Yahweh, they do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make you I make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat into pieces many peoples, and shall devote their grain to Yahweh and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. What a fascinating uh, depiction of uh, God leading them to victory, uh, even out of exile. I love that imagery. Many nations are assembled against you, but they're going to be just like sheaves to the threshing floor. Who, who can who cannot just sort of stand up and cheer when he says, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion? Because that's, uh, that's what God does. He empowers his people to victory. Now, what just out of curiosity, what um, animal do you see in 13 that he's using as a metaphor for a daughter of oh, Zion? Yeah, I guess horns of iron, hooves that are bronze. Okay, so I don't know. So if I had to guess, I would say maybe um, a goat or a lamb. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think, too. A lot of people think this is an ox or this is a bull, uh, but I I think this is a sheep. Yeah. And we are. And that makes sense. And I go right back to uh, the, the 23rd Psalm, of course, and all the shepherd language. You know, clearly we are the sheep of his pasture, and he, he's going to make us so strong that we will beat in pieces many people. That's a just kind of a terrible <laughs> image, to be frank. But I don't yeah, want to get, you know, I don't want to get run over by a whole flock of sheep with bronze hooves. But... Um, and devote their gain to the Lord. They shall. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I, I love the imagery here. Well, in the sense of the now but not yet, of course, the now contemporary to them, um, you know, that is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like warfare as they fight against the enemies around them. But in this, in this day, of course, we have the Lamb of God who came and has been victorious in our play. Uh, you know, our failures are made right in him. And so you shall beat into pieces many peoples and shall devote their grain 
to Yahweh and their wealth to uh, the whole earth. It, you know, it's it's interesting because in their context, that's what victory looks like. In uh-huh. our context, victory sends us not to our own efforts by which we conquer our enemies, but to Christ who's conquered the enemies, uh, which, of course, death, Satan, <laughs> uh, and the world. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, I, you know, there is this great, you know, again, the, I often wonder how the people, you know, how do people hear prophetic words from the prophets? We know that, you know, Jesus will talk, talk about in his lament outside of Jerusalem of how Jerusalem has stoned the prophets. And, and uh, you know, the prophets, even though they have these, these wonderful words of great hope, we still don't take them. You know, we don't believe them until, until it's the time. And, you know, it's only by God's grace and through his Holy Spirit that we can even receive a prophet's word and understand what he's saying. Okay. Pastor Parviz, can you hear me? So what happened? Uh, I I lost power right in the middle of our conversation. I lost power, and and my computers are off, and and my Internet's down, and oh, my goodness. Well, hopefully it wasn't too confusing, but you know what? We're kind of getting towards the end of our our program anyway, so maybe it's time. Maybe it's just the Lord saying, you know what? Yeah, that's enough. That's enough for today. Well, you know, I do appreciate you calling and our lively conversation. And folks, uh, just know that, uh, you know, anytime that you want to uh, reach out to our program, you can call us uh, at the studio, which is what I'm doing right now. Ironically, I had to look up the number, though. (laughs) You can also email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. If we left any questions uh, unanswered, feel free to reach out to me. But I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up today. I'd like to thank my guest this morning. As always, he's a great contributor to the show, the Reverend Kevin Parvis, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor, I mean it. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's good talking to you and have a blessed advent. <laughs> you too, brother. Hey, folks, tomorrow's episode, we're going to take a look at Micah chapter 5, where he prophesies the birth of a future ruler from Bethlehem. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. He emphasizes yeah. the humble origins of this figure who will bring peace and security to Israel. And despite Bethlehem's small size, this ruler's significance will extend far beyond giving a restoration of Israel's strength and prestige. Well, that chapter is unmistakably pointing to the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem. It echoes the gospel account of Jesus' birth. But that is what we'll talk about tomorrow, and hopefully the power will stay on the whole time. (laughs) Folks, we'll see you then. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.